We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. What happens if we don't conquer our fears and when imagination takes over reality? Poe tells us in The Fall of the House of Usher, coming up today. Wait a minute, this is all real? I thought this was my imagination. This is reality? Oh, Lord, we're in trouble. You don't know. Those 1839 stories always leave you hanging, and Poe being the master... I think most literary people, readers, I think even students would say, oh, this is very Poe-esque. They'd be like, oh, I get that. You know, that gothic feel, right? Well, I'll say this for Poe. This was definitely a story that I think was more challenging for me. I I don't know if it was just my mind space where I was, but like, as I'm reading it, like, did you find yourself kind of like wandering off? Like kind of like, I don't think I was distracted, but I was definitely feeling that allure of what could this possibly mean? And it was like every other sentence I'm thinking, wait a minute, I got to read that sentence again. Cause I was still thinking about the previous sentence. Yes. Mm. Because it just feels like every single sentence in this story, we could do a 10 minute video on. There's just so much depth to Poe. And he is somewhat difficult to grasp because his concepts are very far-fetched, even in 2022, and this was written nearly 200 years ago. So the story, to your point about language, is gorgeous, right? Like, it opens up with, there was a coldness, a sickening of the heart, in which I could discover nothing to lighten the weight I felt. What was it, I asked myself? What was it that was so fearful, so frightening in my view of the House of Usher? This was a question to which I could find no answer. And this immediately kind of makes it very psychological, right? Like he sees this house and he's, he knows he's emotionally having this reaction that isn't logical. Like it's like imagination is starting to present a fear to him almost. And we get that sense of the atmosphere is going to be very important. And they're usually always very important in post stories, but this one feels special and unique, even amongst Poe stories for me of like, oh, we're going to get something special because it already is luring you into the deviousness of what's going to happen, not just with the characters, but with the setting as well. Well, and then his character work too, typically like, you know, you look at the Cask of Amontillado or even the Telltale Heart, it's typically characters that are close to each other, but then there's suddenly a divide, right? And in this story, he's called there by his old friend, Roderick Usher, who he hasn't seen since childhood. And I was kind of like, huh, that's kind of interesting that he views him as his only friend and he hasn't seen him since childhood. Like of all people to reach out to, it seems kind of interesting that you'd reach out to someone that you haven't seen in a while. And why would he be the only friend? Also, I thought about why would you call someone like that? And I thought, hmm, this is someone that maybe not judge you because they don't know too much about you. Or is this someone that you can pull one over on? Uh, I thought, oh, he's luring out this poor sucker. That mm. this this guy's going to be a victim for sure. And I thought the whole time, I'm like, narrator, you better have eyes in the back of your head, buddy, because you are <laughs> in for a whirl. <laughs> yep. 
and you know, the, so on top of that, the characters are kind of isolated, the house isolated, setting up this classic hero's journey almost where a character has to leave their comfort and enter into this alternate universe, right? So, so he's like leaving the world behind, entering into this crazy house of Usher area. And it's worth pointing out, interesting, the narrator even tells us house has two meanings, right? You have house like the physical entity of a homestead, you know, protecting you where you live. But house can also mean like familial line. And here we are coming and being called to this dying, sick familial line that's like down to their last two. Yeah, the house is definitely a character onto itself. But I feel like the house is also supposed to be, uh, you know, symbolic for the, the, the two other individuals in the story besides the narrator, the brother and the sister. One of the interesting things. So if we do take this house to be symbolic of the family is you'll right. notice he keeps talking about that dang tarn, right? AKA a lake. Like he's looking into this and like it provides like this distorted image of reality, right? We talked about imagination. We talked about fear popping up in this isolated area. And here he is looking at a distorted version of reality of this house, like this creepy wavy vision of the house in the lake. Like, what did you think about that? I think it added a layer of like duality throughout the whole story that you have the brother and the sister and they're kind of mirrors of each other. And then you have the house being reflected down the lake, mirror of each other, uh, the kind of life and death of the the brother and the sister, mirrors of each other. Uh, the end of the story, it breaks in half, two pieces mirroring each other of the house when it breaks. Uh, there's a lot of duality in this story, and I think that Poe is maybe going for the duality of human nature. And duality, too, even in the sense that when he gets closer, you'll notice that there's an inconsistency with expectations and what his eyes are maybe playing tricks on. We have that quote, perhaps the eye of a scrutinizing observer might have discovered a barely perceptible fissure, which extending from the roof of the building in front made its way down the wall in a zigzag direction until it became lost in the sullen waters of the tarn. I actually read the wrong quote there. I was meaning to go to a different quote, but while we're here, <laughs> I think I, I wrote this one down because I thought it was interesting how the zigzag finds its way into the water. So we talked about like the, the, the split between reality and a perception, like a fake reality in a sense. And we can see how the split comes down to meet the water in a sense too. the way that there's like a crossing of boundaries even. Now, the quote that I meant to say, no portion of the masonry had fallen and there appeared to be a wild inconsistency between its still perfect adaptation of parts and the crumbling condition of the individual stones. So I felt really uneasy when this is happening. I'm like, wait a minute, is the house really falling apart? Is our narrator like crazy? Is this a journey into madness when we enter into this other isolated world? Because that's kind of a thing Poe likes to do. I as well felt the stir of psychological issues. We know that that is something that Poe likes to toy with. And here, I think the house is painting that imagery for something that's supposed to make you feel unsettled. And is this story going to be about something terrible happening to the narrator? Or is it going to be something happening terrible to the Usher family? Or all of them together? Because you think of all of the masonry, all of these people working together, holding things together. Are they going to survive? Or are they going to crumble as individuals? Yeah. And if we do continue that line of inquiry that... The house is an extension of the family's well-being. You'll notice that the 
passages are called dark and intricate passages, right? As they're winding through the house with the ballet, half seeing these people, half not sure if they're real people. Until we get to meet Roderick Usher in his studio, who's literally like lying flat on on the sofa. I don't know about you, but if we're continuing that theme of madness, of isolation, and this house being kind of like a symbolic representation of the state of their mind or the family, it kind of made me think, He's laying down like you do when you go see like the stereotypical psychologist where you're laying down on the sofa yep. telling them. That's exactly. That, I'm like, That's what I was thinking of when he met Usher there. Yeah, I was like, if he's laying there and he, all these terrible thoughts are occupying his mind and he's you know surrounded by this haunted mansion, haunted house, sort of speak, and he's just he's he's wallowing in self-pity thinking oh my god i have this inevitable doom our family is all falling apart and uh he's just he's he's swathed in madness and it it really draws you in quickly and you're like oh man what what's gonna happen what's gonna pop out and you know and then it's just when madeline finally shows up you're like a little disappointed right because you feel like that roderick has he, he he's boosted this up you know he he's played this up a lot from you know just what has happened to him in the, the first few paragraphs well i'll say this too when you meet roderick i'm fairly confident i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure but i did a search for like the quotation marks the first line of dialogue in this entire piece do you know what it is oh it's from the narrator right or is it from well, roderick it's from roderick and he says i shall perish which I thought was a really interesting opening line for the house of Usher, basically. And he's ushering us forward. Oh, so I saw a little play on words there. Ah, nice, Poe. Ah, I well, see what I, you did. I, I think it might even just be a little bit of foreshadowing, too, because to your point, Madeline comes out and she just like, this is going to be perfect for when Mike Flanagan does adapt this. Like the woman that doesn't say anything and almost like doesn't even walk, just like floats across the way and doesn't say anything. Oh, and I think that in the show that I think Flanagan's going to play up heavily that Mad- Madeline is isn't real. Mm. Oh, I think yeah, it's going to be one that. of those kind of sixth sense things that only maybe Roderick can see her, um, and the the narrator is going to placate him a little bit. Well, the perspective totally shifts here, right? Because you, as the narrator, you watch her cross the room, and it's real creepy, right? And then you turn back and look at Roderick. And he's like covering his face and crying, but it, it's not clear why. Like it wasn't clear to me. Was this sadness or was this fear of the sister even too? Or guilt. Hmm. It could be guilt of losing family, guilt of something that he's done. Either way, he knows that the, the house is splitting, like literally both little physic physically the house and figuratively the family is splitting as she is kind of, going through this thing too, because you have this unidentified, uh, I forget the word that they use, but she's like unresponsive to the world. I want to say the word catatonic, but that's not the right word. Did you also feel that the split could be Roderick's psyche is split as well? And that again, there might not be any Madeline and that he has like a split personality that, that she doesn't really exist and that he is two people in one. I hadn't considered that she didn't exist because, I mean, we're in the narrator's head, who also might be a little mad, too, to be fair. And when he was, like, described, like, how he was, like, looking at her as she crossed the room, that made me assume that there was literally something in that room to for him to be looking at 
Otherwise, otherwise, I don't understand what that misdirection was in a sense. Yeah, I guess it's just when she comes back, it's like she vanished like a ghost um, and she was never seen alive. Um, you know, even even after the, the burial. Um, well, she wasn't she didn't speak and, again, right? Yeah. And then that I think it, I don't remember again. I'm paraphrasing uh, that she says that she even seemed more real now that she was a ghost. Well, we have words from the text of how he reacted. It said, I was busiest in earnest endeavors to alleviate the melancholy of my friend. So we know now that it was sadness, at least, that Roderick started to experience. And we're trying to like cheer him up with reading, painting, stringed instrument playing. Like, <laughs> like I think that's a very human response, right? Like you want to cheer up your friend, especially if this is like the only friend from a long time ago. I, I, I get that. And I get the human element of it. But it's also interesting because painting can kind of sometimes be, uh, from a literature perspective, interpreted as uh, ways of interpreting the soul. Like, like art was a way of externalizing this internal emotion or turmoil that you may be going through. Yeah, and through the whole story we see he just, he feels this impending demise come upon him. Uh, and from the story it says, I feel that the period will sooner or later arrive, he tells the narrator, when I must abandon life and reason together in some struggle with the grim phantasm, fear. Mm, yeah, there's that fear thing again, right? And fear, yep. fear of what, right? Is it fear of imagination? Is there a physical harm at this point in the story? Like, it's a very unnerving experience. And if we do believe that painting and art are that extension, right? Like only stringed instruments because all the other instruments freak them out, right? And then for art, his art was abstract, right? It wasn't concrete. It wasn't clear in the same way that there's a lot of ambiguity in the story. So this is the point in the story when they read the poem, right? The Haunted Palace. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is a poem that Poe wrote it's kind of feels meta that he's injecting in here into the story as well. Going to that earlier point about reality and fictionality. This is technically a real poem by Poe that is fictional that he's ejecting into another fictional work of his that we're reading in a book in real life. Like <laughs> it gets kind of meta real quick. So are we led to believe that the Usher family was real? Because if Roderick and Madeline are the last two, and they both die, that family's no more, they wouldn't exist today. So is this the swan song for that family that did Poe really know them? Is he the narrator? You know, because I feel like this one's a little bit too close to home. Well, it's definitely playing on kind of like that duality of imagination and fictionality. But even in the story, you have this idea of the king being haunted by evil. And isn't that kind of what this house is doing? It's it's almost like this, I don't know if the house is evil, but there's like an evil presence that's playing on both the ushers and even to an extent the narrator because uh, a coming up soon is like that story that they read about the, the echelot, the, the, the night, and he starts to read it and he hears the sounds in the house that are like happening in the book. Yeah, that's pretty creepy. Like, oh, what's going on? Like, is this, are they conjuring reality themselves? Are, 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 are is this a self-fulfilling prophecy? Because he already said, you know, he keeps almost foreshadowing the foreshadowing of the foreshadowing. Well, and then you also have Roderick telling him, be like, by the way, like there's things that come to life in this house. And it's like, wait, what do you mean, man? Like, like Beauty and the Beast style? Like, what do you mean things come alive? <laughs> 
Well, the story gets a little bit fantasy driven at the end. And I kept thinking to myself, when those type of elements are introduced towards the end of the story, uh, and then Madeline being buried alive, perhaps, or she is dead and she rises up to seek revenge upon her brother, if she's even real or not, is she a ghost, is she a zombie, um, is is Roderick a vampire, maybe? Uh, you know, because they talk about, you know, how pale he is and... Uh, I, I I thought maybe is the house punishing them because they're supposed to be monsters of some sort? It's hard to say. Like, th- there's a lot of theories out there, right? To me, I almost wonder if the Usher family has this just like self-annihilation prophecy where they're self-destructive, right? Like, like the idea of locking themselves up or destroying their own family. It seems to be brought unto themselves almost in a sense. Do you think that they're punishing themselves because they feel like they've sinned because it isn't implied in the story that mm. uh, Roderick and Madeline are also lovers that that the family has died away to just them two because of incestual behavior and that they feel like oh, they deserve to be punished um, I did not pick up on any of those vibes at all actually uh, to me like the idea of isolation doesn't play well into going down that line. Not, I'm not saying that line of inquiry is wrong, but like, to me, I was just like, well, why is this family splitting apart? Like, why are they two separates? And why does, why does like, even how it's carried out after her death, right? They want to put her into the vault and like seal her up. And it's directly below the narrator's room, but they're like, don't worry. It's lined with like this, like metal, like it's cool. Like, don't worry about that dead body below you. <laughs> like, like there's something about how, like, even in death, they're trying to like seal and isolate her in a sense that I would feel like if there were other intentions to me, like I'd want to see them pull closer to each other almost, but I, I, interesting theory. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of different ways. I mean, cause he seems throughout the whole story to kind of blur this idea between living and dead and sanity and madness between the two characters and it seems to bounce back before between them right when madeline is is going insane roderick is okay when roderick's going insane madeline seems to be fine and it it, it, it get back to that duality of just back and forth back and forth back and forth well let's put it this way the the point of that mad tryst like the night story was about conquering your fear almost in a sense right is this maybe where the family went wrong is that they had these I mean, they call him a hypochondriac, like thinking there's something wrong where there's not or something like that. And all these fears pop up where there are no physical direct threats per se is one of the themes maybe failing to overcome your fear, like like of not rising up to overcome the challenges that you create in your own life. Well, I guess that depends on the individual, right? What happens when you don't conquer your fear? Are you subjugated to it? Uh, do you become a worse person? Do you deserve to be punished for not overcoming your fears? Well, in the story, right, we have both of the men trying to cheer each other up. Well, one's trying to cheer the other up. And we have the fears <laughs> of, of the tempest coming. We hear the noises in the house. And that's when, interestingly, we think Madeline bursts into the room, runs into Roderick, and they both fall down dead. Now, to your point, was she actually there? Was this really a symbolic representation of his fear overcoming him and that's why he died at the end? And in a sense, did the narrator himself fail to conquer his fear? Did he slip into madness and that's why he ran away from the house? So is is it really the narrator's story? Narrator's story 
finding out what's happening to his friends and seeing this intersection between him and his past almost because i mean if you remember early on in the story too when he, when when the, the narrator is the first one introduced he's recalling what his friend was like like when they were little and when he meets his friend you described him as like pallid you know kind of white earlier and you have this incongruency with expectations and reality to that whole conversation that we just had with imagination and reality and they parallel him with like the house with the the big open looking eyes on the house and his kind of gaunt eyes as well. It just uh, Poe man he does it. And a lot of the story kind of remember me uh, reminded me of the uh, the cast of Montalado, right? Or however you say that, I with know. you know locking away your problems and running away from them. Mm. As I feel yeah. like that's what Roderick's trying to do here. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. So I'll say this. We know this is not the only way to interpret the story. This is just our version of it. Please feel free to share with us your view on the story in the comments down below. We're going to leave a playlist to other Edgar Allan Poe talks that we've had on this channel down below. We'd love for you to check them out and subscribe to join us on the journey as we post videos every Monday and Thursday. Una out. Peace.